Our text today is in the book of Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, it's the entire book of Ecclesiastes, though I'm only going to uh, deal mostly with the beginning and the end. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I will read a number of verses and then I will read a few from the last chapter, chapter 12. Listen to these words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. And then in chapter 12, toward the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes is a book that evidences the struggle, the real struggle that you and I face, all humans face, in finding peace, contentment, satisfaction, meaning within the world we live. Most conservative scholars believe that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, the opening uh, verse, uh, 
seems to say that, though some would say it was Hezekiah who wrote uh, the book, and others would say that it was somebody even after the exile. But whoever wrote the book apparently had the capacity and the experience to make the kind of observations that he did, that he was, in some sense, a man of the world, a man of means, a man of education, who enjoyed life, knew how to enjoy life, even the best of life. But the prologue, the beginning of the book, and the epilogue, the end of the book, both begin with similar words. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And I like the way the NIV translates it. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You should know that these words are not the impulsive utterance that comes out of uh, a moment of frustration in life. But these are the words of someone who has been deliberate and thoughtful and has made a conclusion. He is a wise man who has experienced a worldly life in its fullest. And his conclusion is that life at its best in this world is missing something. In the end, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word that is translated vanity or meaningless is used 30 times in this book. And it has the basic idea of simply breath or a vapor. Figuratively, it means something or anything that is unsubstantial, that is worthless or vain. I like the way that it's used in Psalm 39. Listen to these verses in Psalm 39. You have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. And there's that word. He bustles about, but only in meaninglessness. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. What a sad expression to have experienced the fullness of life in this world and to conclude that life is meaningless. But we know people conclude that, even if they don't say it. They sit and wonder about their life. They ask that question that, that the writer asks in chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Whether you're a millionaire or you live in poverty, ultimately you realize 
that there's an inability in the physical, material world to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. So how do we find the meaning and purpose of life? How do we answer that question? What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? I want us to consider two things this morning when we think about that question. I want us to think about, first of all, how important it is to understand the question that he's asking. And then secondly, to understand where he finally looks for the answer to meaning in life. It's important. How do we understand the question? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun. He actually gives a tentative answer uh, at the beginning. What does man gain by all the toils, by all of the work, by all that he's involved in in life? It's vanity. It is meaningless. But as you think about the question in the context of not only the entire book of Ecclesiastes, but in the context of the Word of God, that this is God's Word that He wants us to think about, the first thing we have to realize about this question is that it is basically a theological question. Now, I know our tendency is to make it purely an economic question. How much does it pay? What do I gain in life? You know, there was a day, maybe it still exists somewhat today, when service to humanity was a driving force for vocational choices in life. But today... A lot of young people are simply asking, what is the job that will pay me the most amount of money? And some would even add to that, with the least amount of work. And so they may pick up a U.S. News and World Report and read what different occupations pay in today's market. And... They are answering that question, what will I gain from all of my labors at which I toil under the sun? They are an answering that question by how much will my paycheck be? And in some sense, we all tend to answer that question economically. Whether you're raising a family, where you're sitting with a stack of bills and you have limited savings, you have an uncertain economic future, and you may sit down and in your mind be saying, why am I doing this? What am I gaining from all of my labor and toil under the sun? 
Or maybe you're a single person whose life is basically wrapped up in work and career and, and in your reflective, tired moments. You may ask yourself, why am I doing this? What am I gaining from all of my labor at which I toil under the sun? Or it may be you are at a later stage in life and you have reached retirement and you're looking at, or you're looking at retirement and you look back over a career of 40 years or so and you ask yourself, what did I gain from all of my labor at which I toiled under the sun? Again, for many of us, the wise man's question is nothing more than an economic true, because the truth is most people, apart from Christ, see money as a solution to their problems and as a means to their happiness. And tragically, many Christians do also. That is why Christians work on the Lord's Day, not out of necessity, though some may, but mainly because I need money. And underlying the I need money is I really can't trust God to provide for me on all the other days of the week. We're driven by the belief that money can solve our problems and money can bring me happiness. And that is why we don't tithe, we don't give offerings, we're not generous to people. We want to keep as much as we can because our answer to the question is, what, is, what do I gain from my labor is I get money. But if you read the question in the context of Ecclesiastes and in the context of the Word of God, the wise man's interest is not economical. It's not money. Because if Solomon is the author, he had more riches than anybody else on earth. So he had gained all that a man could gain in life. But the wise man's interest in the question is more philosophical and we would say more Theological, theological. If you're trying to unravel the meaning and purpose of life, then it has to transcend the world that you're living in. It has to be beyond the world that you're living in. Some time ago, I caught an interview with Bill Gates. I watched it. And as I listened to him on a human level, I was impressed with his sense of purpose, his diligence, his intelligence, his business acumen, his family commitment, though now it's his divorce, his philanthropy, his desire to do something with all that he had. But in some sense, in Bill Gates's life, if you would have asked him, you know, what do I gain from all of the labor from which I toil, from toil under the sun? He might have said hundreds of billions of dollars. 
But apparently at some point in his life, even he finds out that all the money in the world still does not bring fulfillment. So he becomes philanthropic and generous. But even then, I guarantee you, when Bill Gates puts his head on the pillow at night, knowing that he has billions and that he has given away billions, there is still that deeper question. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of why I have lived here on planet Earth and labored here? And that is why we stay with people as long as we can, regardless of where they are in life, because we believe that the Bible teaches that every human being ultimately is asking that question, has that gnawing desire within, is living with a sense of of meaninglessness, and all of life is vanity. So the question must be seen as a theological question. But secondly, the question itself is framed in what I'll call the context of creation theology. Ecclesiastes is what we call wisdom literature. And if you notice while reading, there was a phrase that he repeated a couple of times, and it's repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the phrase, under the sun. So the writer is thinking of life on a horizontal view. He's not thinking of life from God's perspective. He's simply thinking of life as a human being living in the created world. And wisdom litter is about life in the created world. It deals with issues under the sun, issues of birth and death, issues of poverty and riches, of justice and injustice, and issues of ignorance and knowledge and happiness and sorrow. And wisdom literature deals with life as you and I live it every day in this created world. And all of wisdom literature, that is biblical wisdom literature, has an understanding that God is the one who created this world. That God is the one who put order into this world. And that a wise man is a man who discovers the order that God has put in the universe and tries to, to, to live by it. But it's interesting that this wise man, as he writes, he recognizes the the God-ordained order of nature. Listen to him in verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth is still here. It remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. But what's interesting about this man who is looking at life under the sun 
is that he sees this order of the world, this regularity of the world, in some sense, the dependability of the world. He sees it as wearisome and pointless that this whole cyclical model of nature as things just repeat themselves day after day and week after week, this cyclical view of nature disturbs him. This vast circle of time with all of the phenomena that, that are taking place and being repeated It is meaningless. It is vanity of vanities. Instead of the predictability of the world and the predictability of nature being a blessing to him, it becomes a weariness to him. And later in the book, he will apply that that same view of of the, the monotonous repetition of nature, he will apply it to the monotonous repetition of life. The man who gets up every day to the same wife, the same house, the same kids, the same noise, the same mess, the same work. And he may, if he's living under the sun, without a transcendent view of God and a relationship with God, he might begin to think, as many do, life is a drudgery. You know, I need to get out of this marriage. I need to get away from these kids. You know, I I need to get away from this job. You know, I need some change in my life. And instead of seeing his life under the providence of God and seeing regularity and dependability as a blessing, he sees it as drudgery. Or I think of the young mother whose daily life involves getting up in the middle of the night to a baby's cry, changing diapers, feeding, playing, napping, changing diapers, feeding, playing, napping, changing diapers. Another day, day after day, more of the same. And maybe in their mind, they're beginning to say, what is the purpose of all of my toil? Everything is vanity. And when, it, when it's an extreme, I know mothers who have taken a shotgun to their stomach. That to them, death was better than life because life was so terrible. Or mothers who give their babies away because they just cannot handle the, the routine, the monotony of life. The truth is all of us fluctuate between feelings of drudgery and joy in life. Sometimes the order and regularity of life is a blessing and sometimes it becomes a drudgery to us. 
One of my uh, favorite motorcycle rides is up around Hancock, New York, Route 10. It's even nice in a car. But there's a 15-mile section up there in the mountains, beautiful paved highway with wonderful curves that, that motorcycles like. And it runs between all of these massive reservoirs that feed New York City. That's why they say New York City has the best water in the world because it comes from these mountain reservoirs. And we love riding through those winding curves. Nobody's ever on that road. It's a road from nowhere to nowhere. And we just sometimes ride it gently. Sometimes we tear it up. But we enjoy the beauty. And we always stop on one of the bridges over the reservoirs. And we take pictures of the beauty that is there. So one day, after coming to the end of the road, we come to this little town of Walden. And there's a diner there. And we go in to have breakfast. And we're sitting at breakfast and the waitress comes and we're telling her how we love Route 10, how beautiful it is. And she looks at us and she says, I hate that road. I have to travel that road every day. I hate that road. But you know, the first time I rode that Route 10, it was beautiful. The 10th time I rode Route 10, it was still magnificent. And her daily ride up Route 10 never changed the scenery. It was still as beautiful as the first day she took that ride and said, wow. But something changed inside. Something changed in the heart. The regularity of your life, you can see it as boring or monotonous, or you can thank God for his providence and where you are in life and praise him in it, give thanks to him in it. But the question, thirdly, is also framed with an awareness of the curse. And you really need to go further in, into the book of Ecclesiastes to see that in chapter 9 and verse 1, to see that what disturbs men who are living under the sun and trying to get as much joy and happiness out of this world that they can, what disturbs them is ultimately, ultimately that death is going to come and ruin everything. Listen to him in chapter 9. He said, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise 
and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is to love or to hate. Man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. They die. All is vanity. He'll go on to say in the same chapter that in light of the fact that death is going to come and ruin everything, he'll go on and say, go and eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now that's good advice and bad advice. Go eat your bread with joy. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. But in context, he's simply saying, because death comes and ruins it all in this life under the sun, this life in this created world, get the most that you can while you can. Enjoy as much as you can while you're alive, because he'll say in the next verse, when you are in Sheol, the place of departed spirits, there's nothing. So get it here while you can. In this vain life that you have. He realizes that something's wrong with the world. That the world is broken. That this created world that God said when he created it, it is good, has now been ruined in some way. Not all of the goodness has been erased, but it has been defaced or effaced, as some would say. It has been ruined. Some of the goodness is, is lost. But if all you have is creation theology, if all you have is the belief that God created the world, set the world in motion, put order into it, and now the world is yours, and get as much out of it as you can while you can, if that's your only view of the world, then you end up with his conclusion. Vanity of vanities. Because true creation theology has sort of a, a hierarchy of thinking. It understands there is the created world. 
There is man above the created world. And then there is God above man. It's interesting that in the book of Ecclesiastes, the only word for God that is ever used is the word that's translated God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. It means power. And it's the word that is normally used of God in his relationship to the created world, his sovereignty over the created world. But it's the name, we say it's the name of his transcendence because it's God the creator, the God who is above the creation. And that's the only name in this book, that God is out there and we are living under the sun. We are living on planet Earth. It's somewhat, we might compare it to many of the founding fathers of our country who were, who were deists. You know, they believed in God, had a strong belief in God, but sort of had an understanding that, you know, God sort of made the world, wound it up like a clock, and then let it go to run on its own terms. So God is out there. And I think functionally, we are all deists at some times. And functionally, many Christians live their lives as deists. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus. But he's far away. He's not with me in my home, in my job, in my car, in my relationships, on my vacation, He's not with me. I don't have to care about what comes out of my mouth, what is in my mind, how I treat people. You know, he's not with me. I don't look to him to find joy and security and peace in life. I'm living in this world. I'm trying to get as much out of this world that I can before I die because death will take it all away. In some sense, when I read the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, he's thinking through some of the same things that the writer of Ecclesiastes is. He's aware of living in a world that stays while generations come and go. He's aware of of this uh, lack of permanence in his life, and he's He's sort of asking the question as he sees, you know, Moses wrote wrote it, and he saw so many people die day after day, death just taking away life in this world. And he's asking the question, you know, what adds permanence to my life? What gives it a value that does not end with death? Because that's the real question of the writer of Ecclesiastes. What do I gain? If death takes it all away, then is what I gain only what I can have in this world and then it's gone when death comes? What profit is there? Is there something that transcends? I mean, what is what Jesus said true? 
that we can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves don't break through and seal. Is there something more than this life? I like the way Moses ends Psalm 90. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He realized that if there was any permanence permanent value to his 120 years on earth. It would only be because God was blessing his life and God was establishing his work. The answer for the question is not money, it's not economics. The answer is not and cannot be in a horizontal view of life, that I'm just going to do the best that I can and get the most that I can while I can, because we should be living with the awareness of the reality of sin, of the brevity of life, of the certainty of death, and of the certainty of judgment that everything I do will be evaluated one day. Creation theology must be married to redemption theology. If you are just living to get the most out of the world that God created without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter how successful you may be, you will still conclude, as Solomon did, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. But if you know Jesus who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. Oh, I thought life was stuff. Life was money. Life was everything that I can experience under the sun. No, Jesus said, I am life. Paul said, when, when Christ, who is our life, will appear, then will we appear with him in glory. That is why the New Testament says that whether you eat or drink, the most insignificant routine act of life, whether you're changing diapers or putting out the trash, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whether it's waking up the same time every morning, going to the same job, doing the same thing, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Everything. Because when Christ is your life, even the messiest, dirtiest, hottest job on earth, in the presence of God, with Christ living in you, is a reason for praise. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Where do you find this meaning in life? He gives us the answer at the very end in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In Old Covenant language, Old Testament language, he's simply saying, worship God. To the Gentiles, he would be saying, you become a proselyte of Israel, you become a worshiper of Yahweh, you, you, you accept the sacrificial system given to the people of God, worship God and obey him. Because this is how we show that we worship him. Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Worship God. Obey him. And have a view to the end when God will take account of what you think is your insignificant, meaningless, monotonous life that you want to get out of. God's going to hold you accountable for it someday. And maybe ask you, why did you think I was way out there? When I showed you that I wanted to be with you, when I took on human flesh, when I walked this earth, lived the life you couldn't live so that you could have my righteousness, died the death that you deserve to die and rose again so that I could give you life. And then I sent you my spirit to live in you and to bring from heaven all of the blessings that I have purchased for you by my, by my blood. Why did you not live in my presence? Live with a consciousness of me and see the routine and the regularity of life as a blessing rather than a curse. When I read Paul's words in Philippians 3, I read the words of someone who does not feel like he is living a meaningless life. He says, whatever, to, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared 
to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rough rubbish that I may be that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings I want to live with him and him in me and I want to live for him I want to know Jesus. And he comes to the end of his life. And he says, I've, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all of those who love his appearing. Is your life monotonous? Not if you see the beauty that God brings into what you may think is the most insignificant place in life. If you're living in a shack in Cameroon or a mansion in Cameroon or if you're living in a broken down house in Philly or a well-kept house in Philly, you will not know true beauty, lasting beauty. You will not know real life until you know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, you will clean toilets to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's praise him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for your presence. That we are in Christ. We're already seated in the heavenlies with him, and we're already blessed with all spiritual blessings. But we are so blind. Forgive us. Forgive us for complaining. Forgive us for wanting to run. Forgive us for thinking that the grass is greener somewhere else. Forgive us for thinking that money is the answer to our problems and the means to our happiness Forgive us for not pursuing knowing Christ and finding in him our greatest treasure and our deepest delight. Forgive us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.